for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Podcast. Podcast. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Brian, as always, thank you for that great introduction. Our guest on this episode of the Outstanding Ohioan Show is Tim Hutzel, who is a well-known consultant, business owner in the Southwest Ohio area. Tim has a particular purpose and passion for bringing manufacturing back to the United States, back to Ohio, and then also helping people achieve high levels of both personal and organizational success with the companies that they work for. What you'll hear in this interview is is Tim will share that manufacturing is really more than just jobs. It's a sense of accomplishment. It's problem solving. It's working with your hands. It's being creative. And in some ways, it's playing. I believe that you're really going to enjoy this interview with Tim. And thank you for listening. Hello. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans show, hosted by Ron Silico. This is episode 11. I'm with Tim Hutzel, who is a neighbor, so to speak, of mine in Oxford, Ohio. He classifies himself as a generalist. He's also an author, and he's got a particular interest in manufacturing with his consulting services. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Ron. Thanks for uh, having me here. I targeted Tim for this interview for a couple reasons. I've known Tim for a number of years. He's a wonderful man, very well-read, very intelligent, has a lot of passion about a topic that we hear about, especially at this time of year. We hear it every couple of years. There's always a politician talking about how they can bring jobs back to the state, back to the nation through manufacturing. Tim's got a process that he's going to walk us through at the latter half of the interview about how this can really be done. But Tim, just wanted to start off by introducing you to the audience. Can you give us some of your background? Sure. Well, I'm a uh... Well, right now we're in Oxford, Ohio, and I'm a, an apple that didn't fall too far from the tree. I uh, I grew up not uh, not far from here, about oh, in Mount Healthy. So how far is Mount Healthy? Probably about ten miles. And I grew up in a blue collar town, uh, in a blue collar street, a blue collar house, and uh, I learned how to work with my hands. Uh, in fact, all the kids did. We we didn't have uh, anything to play with other than our hands and our imagination. So we would take things apart and try to put them back together again, often them not working very well, much to the dismay of uh, my father who once found me using a uh, micrometer as a C-clamp because that's what I thought it was, was geared for. And of course, Pop was a tool and die maker and that uh, destroyed one of his, his tools. But uh, as, as a kid, I grew up on this little this little town called Mount Healthy. And I think we, all of us there, uh, developed uh, uh, very good values. Values of uh, the work ethic. Uh, We all had jobs uh, from the time that we needed money. And there wasn't really any money to be had because our parents were, were, uh, were fairly poor. And so it was collecting bottles, picking blackberries, and selling them, uh, going down to the, uh, the, the creek and trapping uh, muskrats and selling, selling that, anything we could do to earn money. Uh, 
And when I was 12 years old, I had my first manufacturing job uh, by drilling uh, drilling lock wire holes in nuts and bolts. And any of our listeners who know what those are, those are very small diameter holes that go into uh, uh, steel, and it's easy to break those. So I, I broke a lot of drills, but I was making, uh, I think, 25 cents an hour doing that. A lot of money at the time. And uh, as time went on, um, I got uh, better and better jobs. The best job I ever had was making 60 cents an hour at an amusement park, uh, 10 hours a day, uh, uh, seven days a week. And I had more money in my pocket than I ever had in my life, so I bought my first store-bought motorcycle. Uh, before that, we would always just tinker with uh, old bicycles and old uh, motors and make our own. But this was a store-bought. It was something special. Uh, so shortly after those days, when I was uh, 17, I joined, uh, well, my uncle Sam said, he was, he was enticing me, he says, come see me because, uh, you know, I will, uh, I will guide you in a new direction. So I listened to Uncle Sam, and I uh, spent three years in the Army learning how to shoot cannons of all great things. It uh, prepared me well for life, but uh, in all seriousness. The discipline I had in the Army was exactly what I needed to, uh, to take me through the rest of my career, which was uh, uh, burgeoning. It's, uh, I think I started college uh, as an old guy in 1966, got a two-year degree in mechanical engineering technology, uh, then uh, finished up my degree here at Miami University then uh, was working at General Electric Aircraft Engines uh, in manufacturing management. Uh, when the unions went on strike, we had the opportunity to run the machine tools. And uh, it's when I had my first epiphany, and that was like all the things that I was designing, uh, processes and tools for my, my workers out in the shop about how to make jet engines, uh, none of it seemed to work very well. And it was the realization that just because I was wearing a tie didn't mean that I was smarter than the guy in the shop floor. In fact, I was probably pretty dumb because I, I had him do things that just couldn't be done. I learned those during the strike. So after the strike, my whole philosophy uh, changed and uh, eventually got interested in this discipline called organization development which is, uh, it, I, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was akin to the, the engineering uh, and with formulas and models for people and organizations and teams as much as thermodynamics was for, uh, for heat transfer and strength of materials was for the strength and deflection of beams. It was amazing. In fact, uh, it was so amazing that I became... Uh, thoroughly enthralled with it and gave up my manufacturing job at GE and became the manager of organizational effectiveness. Uh, don't tell anybody, but that's a job that, uh, that I invented with the HR director. <laughs> and uh, we created, among other things, programs of uh, teaching people how to understand what they had in common versus their differences and uh, in invented a program called Winning Together, which we can talk about later. 
but it was uh, it was a very valuable way for managers and union folks to have this epiphany of their own about gee even though we are at, at opposite poles of this place called General Electric Aircraft Engines, uh, both in, in space and distance, but also in philosophy and how we think about things and what our jobs are. We have these same uh, uh, things that we're interested in that we bring to the company, things of personal interests. It was, it was a great eye-opener. So, Ron, I'm just going to pause now because I'm probably rambling beyond where you'd like me to. So. No, no, that's, that's great. So going back to, to talking about your childhood, who were some big influences in your life? Oh, my. That, that would take us way beyond the uh, the intent of this this interview. But we, we I think those were the the key influencers and our parents. Our parents worked their butts off for us. They were they were hard workers, and we had we had almost nothing uh, compared to what kids have today. Um, I don't know that I can say that I had um, any intellectual person who was uh, of. You know, an influencer of mine, but it was it was just growing up as kids where we had we had to do for ourselves. It wasn't like wait till somebody's going to do it for you. We, we just made it. We invented things. We created stuff. We would think about the motorbikes instead of waiting to have money, or even when we were of legal age to ride, we would make our own. Uh, and it was I think it was those things that influenced me that. You know, as I think Stephen Covey said, you know, work within your own sphere of influence and not wait for things to happen. Try to make things happen. Very powerful. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So, I know you and I have had this discussion before. At some point, you decide to hang your own shingle. Oh, yeah, that's Leaving right. Leaving GE and, and, and creating your own business. Can you take the listeners through that process? Well, yeah, it was like uh, this was when this was beyond when I was the manager of organizational effectiveness. And the GE said, well, would you like to learn Kaizen? I said, well, I'm not really sure. What is it? And they said, well, we're here to go to Japan and we'll teach you. Well, it was it was a part of the Toyota production system. And it was fascinating for me to be working with the Japanese uh, workers in Japanese factories and learning how they, they implemented the Toyota production system. And I came back to uh, Cincinnati and I was part of the Kaizen team. Uh, lean was not a word yet. In fact, everybody was still trying to figure out this Kaizen thing. Um, and because I had this, and by now I had my master's degree in organization development my radar screen about thinking how to implement Kaizen was vastly different from my colleagues. Uh, their thought was, okay, let's uh, you know go out and do the traditional Kaizen and everything will be fine. And my way of thinking about it is, no, we have to engage the people because it's them who really know what needs to be done. 
uh, how it needs to be done so we don't mess up their lives again, like uh, reflecting back on the, the time that I had to work during the strike and uh, learned how negatively I was affecting my uh, hourly workers' lives. And uh, I, was, I spent quite a bit of time uh, working on, uh, at, at the behest of General Electric about how to implement uh, Kaizen at GE. I was on the, the Jack Welsh team to, to do that. I was one, the one guy from aircraft that was chosen. And uh, GE didn't want to really talk about the people part. Uh, I know that my GE friends are not going to like to hear that, but it was more about let's get her done, let's do it. And uh, I decided I couldn't do that anymore, and I set forward a plan to, to leave, and I did. Uh, left after 21 years of uh, career at GE, and it was very difficult uh, the, the most difficult part of having your own business that, that I've discovered was not in doing the work, you know, the stuff that I loved and I was good at. It was sales. Sales was a difficult, very difficult part. But as I got my business going and uh, bumped into a good friend of mine who we both, uh, both of us graduated uh, from Miami in 1974, uh, he was looking for someone to help him. I was looking for a colleague to be part of. And uh, I joined him and Jackie in a business that they had already started called Winning Together. And, uh, excuse me, started a business called uh, Mainstream Management. So I bumped into a friend of mine who uh, graduated with me in 1974. He was looking for someone to help him, um, and I was looking for someone to be a a colleague with, so it wasn't so hard to do business, and we formed a business called the Mainstream Management. And funny thing is, is I never had to sell the product that I was uh, implementing, which was by then we had. Uh, Womack wrote his book, and Lean was now a word, and people just wanted it badly. Uh, so I never had to sell it. People knew of me and by word of mouth, and they would call me and say, hey, Tim, can you come out and do lean here and do lean there? And, you know, we just did, a, I think, a bang-up job by not doing lean to people but teaching them how to be on their own and do it. Uh, so the, the fun part was being with people and seeing the lights go on and uh, teaching them how to do it so they wouldn't be dependent upon me. But I, I do remember the first few months of uh, life after quitting GE, and my wife would say, when are you going to get a real job, Tim? And I said, well, gee, I thought this was a real job. But, uh, my income went in half. Uh, we were now paying for our medical uh, uh, expenses, and life was not good for a while. But, but then with perseverance and just sticking with it and uh, uh, praying helps too. Uh, you know, we made it, and we we had a very successful business, a multi-million dollar consulting business, of which I decided uh, to quit that too. And now I am uh, supposed to be retired, but I have uh, one client that I'm continuing to work with and, uh, and uh, on a basis that's mutually acceptable to both of us. So as you're developing your professional journey 
you're also growing a family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you mean the, the biological family? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got three kids. Uh, one just finished UC at the ripe age of, I think, Louis 38. Lizzie, who we adopted because we couldn't have any more kids, is uh, she's she uh, finished her degree at Miami at psychology, and she's working as a uh, manager in uh, Olive Garden restaurant. No, excuse me, Red Lobster res- uh, restaurant. Woody, who uh, is 24, I, I encourage my kids to get degrees in something that uh, makes their hearts sing. And so Woody's degree is in theater. And he's actually in marketing uh, uh, employed. So, yeah, the kids are, are doing well. Cheryl and I have been married uh, 46 years this year. And we still do motorcycle rides. And uh, we had to cancel one for this week because of the weather and uh, so we're, we're, we're still having fun with the, their families. So at what time, Tim, in your professional journey, did you become an author? Well, the first time was when a colleague uh, that we talked about earlier, Marv Weisport, asked me to, uh, to contribute to his book, uh, Discovering Common Ground, which is all about search conferences. And I wrote a chapter for him in there about my experiences and winning together. Uh, and actually, I, I never really thought about being an author until uh, I got the itch to to share with people things that I thought was important to share. And that, that was about, probably about uh, eight years ago, I think. And a colleague of mine and I wrote a book that we thought would be useful to them that uh, we wanted it to be like a cookbook. And that book is Profit Globally While Operating Locally, Keeping Your Business in the USA. And uh, by the way, I can tell anybody, if you want to get rich, uh, don't think that being an author is going to do it for you, or easy. So that was a a three-year journey into research and doing work and then writing about it. Uh, The... The, the, the second book that I've, I've written is uh, Bringing Jobs Back to the USA. And the reason for that was, uh, once again, it wasn't about wanting to be an author. It was about trying to get some information out. And that's the, I think that's the reason that we're doing the podcast here is because uh, I'm very passionate about, I shouldn't say I'm passionate about, I'm actually very pissed off. That's not the right way to say it. I'm, I'm angry that kids don't have the opportunities that we had when we were kids to, uh, to do work. Uh, and some of the kids, they don't think about being inventive, like going down to the creek and, and trapping muskrat or picking blackberries and selling them um, or just looking for jobs. But those manufacturing jobs uh, aren't really available to kids, not just uh, pre-college kids, but post-college kids. And I'm, uh, I'm not happy with the way, quite frankly, our universities are handling all this by offering classes that kids have no chance of getting a, a job in. Um, but, uh, but my co-author and I, Dave Lippert, 
In fact, Dave was my first uh, my first client after I quit GE. Uh, Dave is president of a company in uh, Hamilton, Ohio, called Hamilton Caster in Manufacturing. Dave and I have been together since 1995, believe it or not. And over the years, we would uh, uh, we would talk about what's happening with with the society and our uh, the job market. And uh, we'd look around and we'd, uh, we did a test on ourselves. Let's, let's go to Walmart and see what we can find made in America. And good Lord, you couldn't find it. It was uh, all made in China, made in Taiwan. And Walmart was one of the key reasons that all that happened. Uh, our, our company, Mainstream Management, one of the things that we did is we, were, we would run companies uh, for uh, people who people who were the loan holders and helped them resurrect the company so they could sell it, et cetera. And we ran a company called General Time. You'd recognize them by the moniker Seth Thomas, Big Ben, Baby Ben. And uh, Walmart told us that we could no longer sell to them unless we went to China. And you know, that isn't the first company that Walmart said has to be made in China. Well, there's a lot of factors other than Walmart that caused the work to go away. Uh, but the, when one lemming jumps off the cliff, the other lemmings have a tendency to do that other uh, as well. And so what, what happened over the years is many companies just started jumping off the cliff, sending their work to China, thinking that everything was going to be hunky-dory. Um, listening to their, uh, to their financial advisors uh, with visions of sugar plums in their head about we can do this with 25 cents an hour labor rather than the $15 hour in labor that we're paying our people. And uh, uh, once again, I'm going to make some of my colleagues not happy, but greed was a big part of this. It was a big part of sending the work overseas because everyone thought, now we're going to make some big bucks. But the other thing is, is I'm going to make my friends not happy by saying it's also our personal greed because we would go into Walmart or the Walmarts of the world and we would say, oh, look how cheap these products are. How can they possibly be this cheap? And so we started buying them. Well, that just caused the cycle to go on and on. And... Later on, we learned why the products were so cheap. They weren't made quite as well. Uh, they would break. They didn't work right. And then we would have our own problems of trying to call the customer service center. And all of a sudden, instead of talking to someone in Milwaukee, uh, we talked to someone in, in India or China or Indonesia. And we found out that getting service was not high quality as well as the products. And it was like, wow, this, this is not working very well. So Dave and I, we tried to get the ear of many, uh, many influential persons, uh, and we did. Uh, but we thought um, the easier way to do this would be to write a book. By the way, everyone, that's not the easier way. <laughs> because, once again, this was a three-year journey, and I'm still on the journey with them. Uh, helping our publisher uh, get the word out about the book. And, and thank you, Ron, for, for this part. So it, it wasn't a calling where I said I, I'm a journalist and I want to do this or I'm a publisher. I, it was just like, 
crying something inside of me crying to, to get the word out to other people. So I believe the term you use for this process is reshoring, oh, bringing yes. the jobs back to the United States. What can you, I, and I know I've seen, I've seen the list that you've used when you've presented to, to various organizations. What are five to 10 benefits that a company will see by reshoring? Well, uh, the benefits were, are going to be specific to each, each manufacturer. And some of those are going to be um, financial benefits. Some of, they're going to, some of them are going to be uh, benefits that you can't measure. And so let's just talk about uh, maybe what, what's happening in organizations so we can, I can answer the question better. We were talking earlier about the reason that many of these uh, presidents made the decision to offshore as opposed to reshoring was because of the lure of the cheap labor. And what was happening inside the organizations was uh, anything but the, the sugar plums dancing in their heads uh, when, uh, while they were dreaming. In fact, uh, a lot of the times there were nightmares that were, were occurring. The nightmare such as the, uh, the person who designed the product all of a sudden found out that the products, and it isn't just China, but we'll use China, they're a nice, easy target. Uh, the Chinese made decisions about how to, how to redesign the product without talking to the engineer. Now, the engineer may not have known that. The, the um, purchasing person who would buy the materials for the product all of a sudden found out that the Chinese had decided to substitute some materials, often inferior. Uh, uh, the marketing person finding out that the Chinese had decided to change the box that the, the product was in and change the functionality of the product so that it didn't work the way that uh, the marketing person had, uh, had intended. Um, and you can see where this is going on. On and on, everyone in the company who would touch the product found out that it wasn't exactly the same as, as it was when it was made on uh, the company's premises. Uh, it, it even goes down to the shop floor on components that were made uh, for other products, finding out that uh, sometimes there was, ex there was extra labeling on the products, uh, there was some residue on the products that had to be washed off. Uh, we interviewed one person who, uh, who uh, contracted dermatitis because of the, uh, the, the, the uh, some offensive uh, substance was on the product. Another company who found that uh, they had a flea infestation because of a shipment of product that was sent back, that they traced back to uh, fleas. Um, the customer service people who couldn't keep up with the, uh, the high volume of calls coming in, and on and on. And many of those, those issues that we're talking about are costs that you couldn't, that weren't being kept track of. Uh, could you keep track of them? Well, they were so sporadic in nature that you may not even think about keeping track. They all went into overhead probably. But the, 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 benefit, um, the benefit of reshoring is to, to understand that when you involve everybody in your business and you get their input on 
what it's like to have these products, whether they're made in China or whether they're made in California or whether they're made next door. To get everybody's input, you're going to find out that there are a lot of benefits that can be reaped by just listening to the heartbeat, not just of the customer, but the heartbeat of the organization. So we can just reverse all those things where the engineer now has confidence that his design, his or her design is going to be used. The materials will be the right materials, um, et cetera, et cetera. The service, customer service person can, can get input from a customer about a, a problem and within literally the same day go talk to a person who's got responsibility for fixing that and fixing it. So the ultimate person who really benefits uh, is going to be uh, the customer. Uh, will the customer have to pay more? Well, uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe that's a myth that we're hearing. In fact, to debunk the myth, there's a story about General Electric, the big company, big GE with the meatball, you know, <laughs> has, has decided to bring back its water heaters from, from China. In fact, what, what the, uh, the engineers and the managers found out was over time, the design of the water heater was not uh, keeping up with the design of what could have been in the, the world of manufacturing. And once brought back to the U.S., uh, the GE folks by, at, at Appliance Park in Louisville, Kentucky, got together the engineer, got together the marketing person, got together the materials person, got together the person in the shop, got together, got the union person involved. And they looked at the product, and in fact, they redesigned the whole doggone thing. And that product, last I read, and this is a story that's in the book, uh, the product was going to be selling less than the Chinese product and costing less. Uh, so the, so the, the, uh, uh, the profits are being passed on to the... Uh, to the uh, customer. Uh, not a bad story. Uh, you know, the, the real beneficiaries to reshoring uh, will, be, will be our country because there are so many things that have just gone awry that uh, you know, we could go on and on and on and talk about. But the fact that kids would have a place to go uh, work People would have a, a, an opportunity to practice the craft that they're learning about in college, whether it's marketing or communications or hardcore manufacturing. Uh, th that's, those are the true beneficiaries. In our country, our debt is, is horrible uh, because we've become a country that has become used to uh, uh, the handouts because people, quite frankly, get discouraged about even thinking about finding a job. So it's... Uh, necessary uh, or more comfortable to take the handout than it is to uh, go out and find a job. Uh, and I can understand that. One of the great things, Tim, I think about and what you share with me with these books is you give specific actions that can take place. And I think what I would say in my reading is I think there's three environments that you talk about that have to converge for the effort to be successful. And I think you've spoken about the business side of it quite a bit. Educational and educational methodology, what needs to change? Uh, and the reason I'm asking this question is 
you hear quite a bit. I know Dave Lipper was just in the Hamilton Journal last week, quote as saying, we have a severe labor shortage. We need skilled skilled labor to do these kind of manufacturing jobs that are coming back. How does the educational methodology have to shift? Well, I think the there's various levels of education. Uh, let's take high school, trade schools, and, and colleges. Uh, high schools, I think, have to continue uh, keeping up with what the new technologies are going to be. I think high schools are doing a good job training kids ready to go into trade schools, teaching them 3D printing. We visited Hamilton or Fairfield uh, Fairfield High School not too long ago and found their 3D printing is is really hmm. impressive. Kids learning how to work on CAD and then uh, going to a 3D printer and, and being able to get renderings. Uh, the the trade schools I think are doing a good job. Uh, the universities I think need to be thinking. Uh, more about what they're churning out rather than the money that they're bringing in. Um, I know I'm not, not going to make friends by saying this, but I, I think it's unconscionable for kids to have student debt of $80,000. This, this is a, a true story of a waitress who was waiting on me at a local uh, restaurant. She's a junior in strategic communications. Her student debt is $80,000. Think about that. There's no, there, there, there's, there's nothing that she can sell once she's paid off that debt to, to bring her back, $80,000. That $80,000 is probably going to turn into well over $100,000 by the time she pays it off. I think the universities have to be more societally conscious about what they're doing. Uh, trade schools, I think, uh, from what I know, and I stay in touch with uh, the Great Oaks, the people, the folks that are there, I stay in touch with the high schools. I think they're doing a pretty decent job. And um, they can't keep up with the demand. As soon as a kid comes out of a trade school or high school, uh, they're, they're very marketable. Political. What needs? What are some specific things that need to change in the political environment to well, make reshoring more feasible? Well, there, there's there's some there's some starts and stops that I think need to happen in in Washington. I, need, I'm not going to pick on either side, but these are the things that I think have to stop. So what 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 to rather than talking about stopping, what I think the the uh, our, polit our politicians in Washington need to do is they need to be very sensitive to the extremely high cost of being uh, in, in your own business. It's, it's extremely expensive. Uh, the, the tax rate is, is way too high. It's too cumbersome to get through all the red tape. And there's no incentives. Well, there's few incentives at the, uh, the national level to encourage companies to come back. Many of the encouragement is coming from, from the economic development centers, uh, local people, uh, saying, hey, come over in my state, come over here to my county, come over here to my city. 
and will give you uh, tax abatements. I think there needs to be a, a greater plan. One of the, the things that uh, we're planning on doing as uh, my co-author and I, Dave Lippert, get engaged with, with folks is we plan on taking um, an actual plan to uh, Governor Kasich in, in Ohio about here's a, a concerted voice and effort that your manufacturers, your chambers, and your economic development people are saying we need to do. And that'll be um, a voice that, that will be made up of those representatives. I think they need to be extremely more sensitive to the societal and economic issues that they're causing or preventing from happening. Okay. To that point about Ohio, since this is an Ohio-focused show, what what needs to change in Ohio politically to to keep manufacturing coming back? Well, I think I think we need to have governors like Kasich, not in name or body or or. Or party, but we need to have folks who have on their agendas active, active uh, items that keep businesses in business and help create new business. I think we need to have folks who are in politics who are encouraging the uh, the, the educational institutions to serve uh, serve needs that are there. And where there is not a need, you know, don't keep you know, trying to pump kids out with degrees that, that they're not going to be able to do anything with. And the other thing is that for them to realize, and I think this is an accurate statistic, for every dollar that manufacturers spend on themselves, there's another 40% of that that's spent in the, uh, the supply chain. Uh, and not just the supply chain of the raw materials that go into making products, but the restaurants, the, the beauty parlors, the car repair shops that are there. And those are all the, the, the businesses that um, are not as, as, as healthy as they could be. That when we think of manufacturing, it's the person running the drill press or the CNC machine. But it's also creating all those other those other jobs that people don't have to go to college for, that don't need to go to college, that, quite frankly, in some cases, shouldn't be encouraged to go to college. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with being a barber or being a beautician or being a car repairman. Those, those are those are good, um, good jobs that are necessary. Great. You've mentioned it a few times. And in fact, you shared with me you've identified it as your next project. Winning Together. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, Winning Together, th this, is, this was an epiphany of mine that I had as we were discussing. I was doing some work for a client um, around a, a psychological test for, for his people. And as I'm sitting waiting for the folks to come in, I'm thinking, now why in the heck am I doing this? Uh, why do I want to do this, this particular program? And it occurred to me that I'm doing it because... I liked it. It's something I was good at. I knew about it, and it. Uh, and I actually, I was ashamed after I really thought about the fact that I was doing this only to serve my own gratification. And it it, it occurred to me further that uh, the real reason for doing those kinds of um, interventions, as we like to say in OD, is really to serve the client. 
And this particular program would be to help people understand each other, understand themselves, and how to communicate better. And so I decided to go back to my my roots at GE with this program that I created back in the, uh, maybe it was the late 80s, I can't recall, called Winning Together, where the premise was whether I'm a union person or a manager or a machine operator or an engineer, if we can discover what we have in common, we have a better chance of helping each other achieve our, our company goals and our personal goals. So the new program, Winning Together, is going to be um, uh, uh, an all-too-late pickup on that from the early 80s or late 80s to now the... Uh, It'll be 2015, but it's going to be um, trying to align people's behaviors in the business so that they have a better chance of achieving their company goals and for the real reason why people go to work is to achieve their, uh, their personal goals and family goals. Uh, so we're working on that now, and I, I can't say who Mr. X is at what company that has uh, agreed to let, uh, let us do this, but he's also... And you can put this on the podcast. He's he's reluctantly agreed to be a co-author to the book that will come out of it. One question I always asked him to wrap up the interview is legacy. What, uh, what legacy are you hoping to leave behind? Well, I'd like to leave the legacy as the best dog on uh, amateur radio, amateur, amateur, amateur radio operator, uh, <laughs> Best vintage motorcycle racer, um, an okay guy at, at uh, his profession, but better known for the fun things he did, and uh, they had this uh, very uncanny resemblance to Tom Cruise. <laughs> I think everything was true except that last statement. <laughs> How can people learn more about you, Tim? Well, uh, I do have a website. It's called uh, timhutzel.com. T-I-M-H-U-T-Z-E-L dot com. And uh, what I love to do is I love to answer the telephone. So if you just call me, uh, even though I may not see your name on the phone. By the way, these phones these days are pretty pretty <laughs> boss, aren't they? So at any rate, my number is 513-225-4118. Uh, just give me a call and I'll... I, guarantee that I'll answer it and we'll talk for whatever you'd like to uh, talk about. Well, Tim, thank you for being on the Outstanding Ohioans show today. Uh, I, I think people that are listening to the show certainly identify with your, your purpose of trying to bring manufacturing back to the United States and also can relate to your desire to towards your people orientation in the workplace. So you're creating win-win environments for everybody. Well, well, thank you all for listening to this, and uh, let's see if we can bring some jobs back. We we all have our part of doing it. Great. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you for turning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Please take the time to rate the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>